Welcome. Hey, y'all. It's a little crowded up here. Uh, good to see y'all. Thanks for braving the snow and being here. My name is Simon. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you at some point. Uh, yeah, it's so good to be here and good to be a part of this uh, group tonight. Um, before I begin, let me say this. Uh, last week, I know I started off my sermon by directly addressing kind of the women in the room. And I know that for some of y'all, I think I kind of put my foot in my mouth, and I want to apologize for that. Uh, part of the go- power of the gospel is that we can approach each other um, and ask for forgiveness, and so this is me doing that. I know I've talked with some of y'all this past week, and I'm glad to always uh, talk to you about that. If you were hurt in any way by that, I'd love to, to talk to you about it. Um, meet me out there afterwards, or email me, and we'll get together, but anytime you want to do that, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to talk to you and hear you out. I am sorry if I hurt you in that. So I want to say men experience as much pressure as women. That I was not speaking or trying to single women out in any way that was mean or done in any way that was kind of from a bad place. So thank you for your grace in that. And thank you all for the, those of you who have come to me this week and kind of talked to me about that. So thank you. All right, let's begin. Um, so picture this. It's 1980. It's El Salvador, South American country. Super hot. Super, super hot, and not only is the heat oppressive, but so is the government. Um, brutal torture, systematic oppression and abuse, and a lot of people are speaking out against this, but one of these people that's there in 1980 El Salvador is a man named Archbishop Oscar Romero, and he starts to speak out against this oppression. He starts to speak out on the behalf of the poor and the disenfranchised, people who are just being really ground down by the government. And this is a predominantly Catholic country, and he's an archbishop. So what does he do? He decrees that the only place where you can go and have mass is his church in El Salvador. And he does that so that everybody who wants to kind of take part in the church has to go and stand in line for hours to go to church. And you have this mingling of rich and poor, people who drive Mercedes and people who... Sometimes clean Mercedes for a living. People whose children can go to school and people whose children can never afford to go to school. And it gets a lot of protest, but people looking back on it have said, you know, this is the turning point. This is the place when people mingled and mixed and realized this is not right. And it's also the turning point for Oscar Romero, because a few weeks later he was gunned down because of calling out and saying, hey, we're going to do this one mass here. What is the principle of the gospel that he got so well? That he believed in so strongly that he would give his life for? Because he knew as he was challenging the government, people are going to be very upset about this. And these people are not afraid to push push me around. They're not afraid to push other people around. Why are folks so strongly opposed to it? I say it's this. It's that the aim of God's kingdom is that all people everywhere would be united together in peace and justice. And in some ways... Maybe on a much smaller scale than this. This is what RUF is working for here at UNC. Through things like table. uh, Through things like serving the community in some ways. And I want to say that all people here are welcome. You know, whether or not you consider yourself a follower of Christ or not, never assume that everyone is. But everyone of race, regardless of race or religion, or wherever you're coming from, whatever you've done before you came in here, whatever you're afraid you might do later on, everyone here is welcome. I think the problem that a lot of people have, though, with Christianity is they feel that religion is divisive. It doesn't unite people, it divides people, and I want to be a force for unity. 
I don't want to be a force for division. We want to be inclusive, not exclusive. And to that I say amen. Let's be inclusive. Let's build bridges to people instead of burning them down. Well, let's ask ourselves a deeper question first. What are we trying to include people in? For Christians, we're trying to include people in a relationship with Christ. Because He's good, He's true, and He's the only way to the life that God intended us to have with Him and with one another. And I know that some people here out there are thinking, well, that's not that inclusive, that's pretty exclusive. But I would say, hold on, we're going to get there, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But let me say this, let me start off by making a very exclusive claim here. That apart from the gospel of Christ, we will never have a truly just, loving, or humble community that lives out real inclusivity. That apart from him, there will always be barriers to entering community. So before I begin, uh, let me cite some sources here. Uh, in the back, we have kind of a resource table. And one of the resources up there is a sermon series that Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, did on barriers to Christianity. And his talk on exclusivity is very helpful. I used it a lot in this. Uh, also, a guy named Leslie Newbegin wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. I used that a lot in this, too, and uh, in our list of our sermons and acts. So... As we get in, tonight we're going to talk about two things as they relate to true gospel mission. What is false inclusivity and what is true inclusivity? What does it mean to be really inclusive and what does it mean to not be truly inclusive? So let's read Acts 2, 1 through 13. We'll get started. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own languages, in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Let's pray. Father, we know that apart from your work, uh, we can't know what this means. And Lord, I pray now that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, that you would work so that we would understand not just one another's words, but your word. And so that we would hear and receive your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So to start with, uh, what is God doing here? This is kind of a, an odd passage. Isn't it? What is God doing here? For one, he's initiating part two of his plan in the world. Part one is Mark's gospel. Jesus is born, he lives as a person, his public ministry, his death, his resurrection. Part two is this. It's us, it's the church, it's God's people. Pentecost is the birth of the people of God. And that means a people united not by a common language, as you see here, not by a common race or a nationality, but by God's work. This is a new people composed of all types of peoples. A new humanity that's been redeemed by God. This is God's, God's design in the world. 
And as the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, you have, a dis- you have a reversal of the disunity of the world, don't you? Because of the different languages that people spoke, because of the conflicts between these different races. You have Romans here, and you have Jews. You have the people who are oppressing, and you have the oppressors. And yet they're coming together as one to understand the gospel. Because God's work is to unite people together, to bring them to himself. And so with this act on God's part, with the Holy Spirit being poured out, these people are now equipped for witness and mission. And they dive into it immediately, if you read the rest of Acts, making exclusive claims of the truth about Jesus. But where do people in kind of our day and age kind of struggle with this kind of sense of mission? How do we struggle with this? You know, I think it's hard for us to say, you know, religion is going to unite people. It's not going to divide us. And, you know, even as a ordained pastor, I have to admit that religion, generally speaking, can be incredibly divisive. And it can cause an incredible amount of strife between people. Because religion on its own can create a slippery slope in your heart that can even lead to oppression and violence. You know, if you tell a group of people, you have the truth and you are saved by performing that truth, that has to lead towards a sense of superiority towards the people who don't believe that truth. You stereotype those people, you dehumanize those people. Finally, that can lead to a condition where you either passively allow those folks to suffer or you go out of your way to make them suffer by persecuting them. You can feel like they deserve it. Right? So what do you do with that? What do we do with that? You know, our society said that once you realize that religion is deeply divisive between people, you have to do something. And there's two main strategies that people have generally taken here. And I don't think either one of these strategies work. There's the first strategy is kind of hoping or helping religion to weaken. You call for it to disappear. And for the last two centuries, kind of Western civilization, Western intelligentsia have believed that as people get better technology, they'll give up religion, right? Like, if I think that the stuff that is in my iPhone is not like little wizards that pass spell books back and forth and like angels and demons, but like some guy wrote a computer program and then a dude at Apple made a really beautiful like phone and then uh, someone marketed it to me well, like I'll give up on religion, right? But that doesn't really hold up. In, in the last hundred years, Africa has gone from 10% Christian to 50% Christian. South Korea has done the same thing. China is poised to do the next the same thing in the next century. And the irony is that when you try to stamp out religion, the more it grows. Why is that? Because don't make the mistake that religious views are only in your head. Because behind the cognitive, there's always a spiritual realm that people are constantly dealing with. Everyone ends up worshiping something. And it may, may or may not be the God of the Bible, or the God of the, the Koran, or the walk, walking the path of the Buddha. But you will worship something, whether it's money or power or your spouse or success. You are made to worship. And that is an unavoidable part of being a human. You can't stamp it out any more than you can stamp out people's love for good food or art or culture. Like It's just part of who we are. The second strategy people try to take is that you can find religion to the private realm. We aren't against religion. Let a million religious flowers bloom. But keep it in the private realm. And the, the first thing they do is they say, well, let's agree on these two things first. Let's agree that every religion is equally valid to go to God. And that way you don't have to offend anyone or you don't try to convert anyone to your religion. 
And two, religion is good to give you strength in your private life, but don't argue for the values of your religion in the public square. Because that's not fair. Like, pray, but like, kind of pray behind closed doors. Anybody can do what they want to do behind closed doors. So go and pray if you want to, and use that for strength later on. But neither of these statements can hold water. Why? I would say, if you're in response to all paths are equally valid, because that's kind of this naked assertion. And what are you basing that assertion on? Some people would say, well, no one has the right to say they have all the spiritual truth. We all see in part. We all see in part. But one missionary put it this way. He was, his name was Leslie Newbegin. He moved to India when, like, when he was in his 20s. He worked there for 50 years. And he had this story kind of tried out in front of him all the time. And you may have heard it. You may not have. It's okay. And it, it goes like this. It says that one day there was a king, and he wanted to show how all religions were the same. And so he has three blind men come in, and he has an elephant come in. And the first blind man goes up to the elephant, and it grabs its trunk. And he says, oh, an elephant is like a snake. It's long, it's slender, it coils all over the place. An elephant is like a snake. And the second blind man came, and he put his hand up on the side of the elephant, and he said, no, an elephant is like a, a big brick wall. It's rough, and it's tall, and it's really big. And the third blind man came up to the elephant, and he grabbed it by its leg, and he said, no, an elephant is like a tree trunk. It's hard, and it's knobbly, and it goes up to about your waist. Like, that's what an elephant is like. And the king kind of leans back and he says, see, this is the way all the religions of the world are. That all of them only grab part of the elephant, part of who God is. And they're all kind of struggling to see, but here we are and we can see that they're all really part of this one big thing. And Leslie Newbegin, the missionary guy, he said that he heard that story dozens and dozens of times while he was there. And he kind of realized eventually that to tell that story, you have to assume that you're not one of the blind men. Like, you can't be one of the world's religions. You have to be the king sitting back who can see the whole picture. And he realized, like, that's actually kind of an arrogant place to be. In a position where you can judge all the world's religions like that. Because when you say that no one should convert anyone to a view of religious reality, isn't that a view of religious reality? It looks humble, but it's really not. Alright, so the second claim is this. Don't make claim for values in the public realm. People might say, like, hold up, I'm a pragmatist. You know, we can leave these religious things at the door because they're based on faith, and no one can judge between those things. Let's just look at strategies and policies of things like prison reform, education, military spending, etc. But there's a huge problem with that, and here's why. Well, first off, go, go back to what we talked about with religion, where everyone has some sort of religious view in the world. What do you mean by religion? It's a set of answers to the big questions. Why are we here? What's right and wrong in the world? What do we need to spend our time doing? What does it mean to be a just person? That's all shaped by your religious categories. And no one can operate in life without a set of answers to those things, at least not implicitly. So let's talk about this kind of in a UNC way. Let's talk about a fair way to get basketball tickets to the Duke game, right? Don't bring your religion to basketball tickets. I just want basketball tickets. So what if I were to come up to you and I would say, you know, I'm Simon Stokes, not a graduate of UNC, never been a student here. I don't really have any intention of ever being a student here. But I would love a couple of free tickets to that Duke game, you know? Like, I think I should get some. What do you think would happen? What would y'all do? Uh... 
people would probably laugh at me. Or at best, like they'd like very gently sit me down and say, you know, buddy, pal, we can't give you free tickets here. Uh, we've paid good money to be here. Uh, if you want Duke basketball tickets, either go and scalp them or buy them on Craigslist or something like that. Or if you wanted to, you could go and become a student and then you could get tickets. But we have to be fair. You have to pay for these tickets, right? Like, that's a fair way to do things. On the other hand, what if somebody said, hey, I'm a student. My family has given millions of dollars to UNC in the last few years. I think I'm entitled to more than one ticket here. I want 100 student tickets to this, this game. Because my family has given a lot of money. And all the people whose family hasn't given money to, to UNC, like, why did they get as many tickets as I get? What would, what would happen if that kid came in here? Like, there'd be a riot. <laughs> like, is riot even strong enough? <laughs> You're not taking my tickets. <laughs> um, why is that? Why do neither one of these things work? Because neither of those things is just. Somebody can't just demand tickets because they want it. And somebody can't just take tickets because they think they've given a bunch of money and cut all these other people out. You know... How you decide what in that is fair and is not fair is important. And it shows a deeply held belief about the way that you think the world should be. Everybody has a set of exclusive beliefs. And you can't escape that. And what we have to find is the ones that create a sense of peace and reconciliation and love. And that's exactly what God is doing here with these people. Look at verse 11 right here. What do these men exclaiming about? What are they excited about? God's mighty works. What are those works? It's Jesus coming and being a person and carrying the weight of our sins and dying for us. You see, here's the thing. The gospel says that you are a sinner and you need grace. But what the gospel does is that it humbles you before the people who don't agree with you. Sorry, excuse me. There's no room <laughs> for looking down on people in the gospel. Because you're not in because you just got it, or you heard the right argument, or you're smarter than other people. You're in because God has poured out His Holy Spirit in your life, and He's opened your eyes to see the truth and the grace of His Son. You're in because God is merciful. Just look what's just going on in this passage. The Holy Spirit, the third person in the Godhead, has come down from heaven and He's filling people in that room. What is holy is going inside of what people who are full of lust and anger and pride and the same people who betrayed Jesus to His face, and yet He's dwelling with them. What's the deal with the wind and the fire? You know, like, why is it talking about wind and fire? That's the Bible's way of talking about the Spirit in the sense that it has power. The wind goes where it wants to go. The wind knocks over trees. The wind blows and it changes things and you don't see it. And fire, it refines. It makes holy. And what it's saying here is, is that when God enters your life, He is at work in your life in a way that is powerful, in a way that makes you holy and good. And what it essentially means is that these people... And you, if you have the Holy Spirit, are taking part in the life of God Himself. And that's a beautiful thing. That God is the ultimate inclusivist. And if you want to be one of His people, then you have to be inclusive as well. But you have to do it in His way. Look, lots of modern skeptics have said, 
Well, isn't Christianity just a power play to try to sucker people in? But power in claiming truth is an inescapable reality of who we are as people. You can't avoid it. Power is part of being a human, and all human beings have some sort of power. And if that's true, then the only option is, what kind of power will you claim? Do you claim a power that serves at the cost of its own life? And does it try to ignore the differences between lots of different ethnicities and groups and languages, but actually gather those people to itself? And says the only place that you can actually be different is when you're accepted and loved based on something that you haven't done, but something that someone else has done for you? Isn't that the kind of power that you can take into your life? That seems really inclusive and really just and really loving? You know, the true common denominator between God's people is the cross. And it's not our Christian lingo, and it's not whether or not you don't cuss, or whether or not you don't drink, or if you're a virgin or not a virgin, but it's Christ's death for you. And it's God's work applied to your heart. And that's what brings you in. And that's what makes you a part of any Christian community. RUF, Cornerstone, the BCM, whatever. We're here because of Christ and His work. And not because of all this other stuff. Look, if you take moralism into your life, or moralistic religion in your life, and whatever guise it might manifest itself, then you'll feel incredibly superior to all those terrible secular people who are doing whatever they want to do. But if you take secularism into your life, you'll feel superior to all those stupid, naive, religious moralists. But if you take God, hung upon a cross for you into your life, then you'll be humbled. And you'll serve the people who don't love you. And embrace the people who disagree with you. Because that's what God has done for you. Because when we were still enemies of Him, He reconciled us to Himself through His Son. Look, Christians don't claim to know all the truth of the universe. We don't. But what we do claim is to know the one who is truth. And so we point you to Him. Do you have questions? Then pray in humility to the God who is truth. Do you struggle with the idea that Christianity is unapologetically concerned with the only way to know God is through the death and resurrection of His Son? Then wrestle. I mean really wrestle with that in Scripture. I mean really go to it. Are you utterly convinced of the truth of Christianity, but you still can't stand your neighbors? Then get on your knees and go to the one who's reconciled himself to you, his enemy, and made you his son or his daughter and his friend who smiles at you at the cost of his own life. Do those things. I'll end with this. I'll end with this. It's about 1907. It's the deep south. I mean the deep south. city of New Orleans. And it is really cold. Maybe not even on a night like this. It's so cold that there's a young boy on the back of a coal cart blowing on a trumpet as they go through the red light district of New Orleans. And knife fights, gun fights, fist fights, fights with razors. He's seven years old. He's seen all these things. He is dirt poor. He is so poor that even the poor people around him look down on him. He's the son of a prostitute himself, and he's grown up in Storyville, which is New Orleans' 
really, really infamous red light district. He's often hungry, like some of those kids we saw in the table video. He goes to sleep hungry. He wakes up hungry. And he's looked down upon because he's just some exceptionally poor African-American kid from the ghetto's ghetto in 1907 New Orleans. And you don't know it at the time, but in a couple of years, he's going to get arrested and sent to a boarding school for delinquent boys because on New Year's night, he fires his stepdad's revolver into the air and is arrested at 11. He's a little rougher, a little rough on the run the edge. But one day, this young boy is taken in by a very kind young Jewish couple. And even though they're not rich people, they take this kid under their wing, and they sing him lullabies, and they feed him, and he can't go to school because he's been kicked out. But they give him work. So he has something to do during the day, so he has some sort of dignity in the world. And one day this kid asked them for $5, which in 1907's New Orleans is a lot of money, especially to give to a kid who's from the ghetto. But they give him the 5 bucks, and he goes down the street to a pawn shop, and he buys a trumpet. And that kid's name is Louis Armstrong. And he became one of the greatest musical geniuses of all time. And what that couple did was not just kind, it was great. And it was great because it was merciful. And that mercy transformed that kid's life. And as he grew into a man, it transformed the culture of that city. And as it grew further on, it transformed our nation. So that people for hundreds of years can listen to Louis Armstrong's music and enjoy it. Because it is awesome. It really is. And what God is doing through the Spirit is He's making you great. And he does that not because you're the best or the brightest, but because he's good. And he loves orphans. And he loves strangers. And he loves people who are poor and who come to him with empty hands. And when he looks at you and he brings you into his family, he makes you great and he blesses the people around you with that greatness. And that lasts not for centuries or even thousands of years or millions of years, but forever. Because in God's kingdom, God's blessing is never end. And you're a part of that through the work of the Spirit and through the work of Christ. So accept that and receive that tonight. And let's sing and rejoice in that as we go. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your work in our lives. Lord, that we don't come to you because of our intelligence. But we don't come to you because we got it. Or because we're good people. But Lord, you come to us because we're orphans. And you come to us because we're empty-handed. And Lord, you give us the things we need, even belief. So Lord, I pray, God, I pray, that we would want what you want. That we would be moved by the things that you would have us be moved by. By your word, Lord, through your spirit, that we would hear and receive the power and the truth and the grace of your Son who makes orphans sons and daughters, who makes strangers best friends. Lord, I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.